And if you guys have a Bible, we're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. But before we do, I have a question for you guys. How many of you were here last week when we got to hear from our new friend Sam and hear his story, his testimony? If you missed it, I encourage you to reach out to the office. We do have a private video uh, link that you can watch and hear uh, his story. But I have a question for those of you who did hear Sam share. What did you learn about God, the power of the Holy Spirit, about the life of a believer in this world? What insights were you left with? So I would want to, if someone would be so bold, I want to hear from one person. What was your takeaway from Sam's story, for those of you who heard it? Dave. Sorry, Larry. The main thing that that, uh, stuck out to me was that no matter what you're going through, as he went through difficulty after difficulty after difficulty, every step along the way, he was giving his testimony, and God was making, opening up the door for him to say something or anything, and every time, somebody got the word of God, and some seed was planted, and people were giving their lives to Christ all the way along, even when he was... uh, trying not to, not to share it, God still made a way for him to, to plant a seed. So, Amen. Yes. Jesus is Savior, but we are his witnesses. And there's this beautiful dance that when we surrender to that calling, to that identity, to be people that tell other people about the goodness of God, we get to experience God saving souls through our witness. And it's just beautiful, beautiful testimonies and encouragements to me of like, oh, it feels costly for me to share. It was costly for him to share in all of those instances. But God showed up in mighty and powerful ways. So I encourage you, if you haven't listened to it, reach out to Lori, to the office, take a listen. It was a a gift. Um, But today we're back in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7. We're rejoining Jesus on the journey. We're continuing to learn from him as we tag along as his apprentices. You see, we've completed our exploration of Jesus's sermon on the plane, which is that uh, plane, not plane, uh, the first major block of teaching in the gospel. And now we're back on the road. We're, we're on the journey in Galilee as Jesus is announcing and manifesting what does it mean that God rules and reigns, that he is Lord, that his kingdom is being established on the earth. So we're on the streets of Capernaum, and here's what we read, starting in verse 1. After he, Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue, our our gathering place, our house of worship. In Capernaum, we meet a Roman centurion 
This infantryman's rank is the rough equivalent of what you would say a modern first sergeant is in the army. You see, in the Roman legion centurions, they commanded units of 80 to 100 men. They weren't appointed to their positions, but they were enlisted men who rose up through the ranks over their 20-year terms of service. These soldiers were the backbone of the Roman army. They were the ones that were in charge of maintaining discipline. And at this time, you have the 6th Army, what's called the Iron Legion, is stationed in Syria. And they have all of these Roman auxiliaries, which are uh, these mostly locally recruited. They're Syrian Roman soldiers that are kind of the occupational force in Jewish territory. And you have these cohorts that are billeted in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. They're billeted in Galilee. They're in this fortress called the Fortress Antonia in Jerusalem. This is Rome's presence on the ground as they occupy the conquered Jewish nation. Yet what's most surprising to me about this centurion is how he's depicted, how he's regarded by the local population. He's this representative of kind of the imperial war machine. He's this embodiment of the conqueror's iron fist. Yet the Jewish elders, they call him worthy. He is said to love the people of this land. He's a supporter of their native religion. Guys, on a soldier's salary, he built the city of Capernaum, their synagogue. You might call this a a savvy counterinsurgency strategy. You could accuse him of trying to kind of superstitiously placate the local gods. But I think it's something more genuine. It appears that this old soldier's heart has been softened. Empathy and compassion just kind of seem to exude from him. And not only is he benevolent to the oppressed, but he is also just deeply humane. You see, most Roman masters would deem a terminally ill slave disposable and not worth the trouble of trying to alter what seems like their inevitable fate. But Luke says that the centurion highly valued his servant. And in the Greek, that word can either mean that the servant was costly, he was precious to him, he was a a financial investment, but it could also mean that he was honored and respected and cherished by his master. And we have reason to suspect as well that this servant was himself Jewish, Perhaps this man was our our foreigner's closest connection to the people of God and to the God of Israel. And I believe that our our grizzled Syrian sergeant has become a God-fearer. That's what they called an outsider who had begun to devote himself to the one true God. He's not quite a convert, but he's more then curious. He's a seeker who's open to change. He's willing to be convinced of new beliefs and paradigms. He's receptive to new allegiances and experiences. And he's heard about Jesus. And he's heard about the Redeemer who was promised to the Jews, the Messiah that, who was foretold to remake the world and secure blessing 
for all nations. And the Jewish leaders, Capernaum's men of of social and religious influence, they're sent to implore Jesus on this soldier's behalf. And you see, it's customary in a culture like this to use a go-between when an intermediary, when there's some sort of social distance, some social disparity that separates one party for another. If you were an inferior status, if you were lower on kind of the social chain, you would send someone of higher status to petition on your behalf with someone who was your better. And this itself is, a, is unexpected and a mark of the centurion's humility because he should be the one of higher standing. He's the conqueror. He's the man in charge. But he considers himself beneath Jesus, beneath even the Jews whose territory he occupies and helps govern. And now check this out. While the Jews commend the centurion's good deeds, while they declare him worthy of Jesus' time and attention, the centurion offers a far different assessment. He says this, verse 6, And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent his friend, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Say the word. That in itself is astounding. Because the ancient world, they had a category for healers, for miracle workers. Notice even the Jewish elders assume that Jesus can do something to restore this man's servant. But they all believed it was something, I don't know, almost almost magical. It was an act that required direct contact. Recall what was recorded in Luke 6.19. Luke says, And all the crowd sought to touch Jesus. For power came out from him and healed them all. But this man regards touch to be unnecessary. Jesus merely has to voice the command. He says, For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. What does this man believe about Jesus? Jesus is not, in his eyes, a miracle worker with a particular set of skills. The centurion has a flash of recognition. He glimpses in Jesus an echo of his own experience. Jesus, too, is a man under authority. Jesus, too, is the agent of a kingdom. But he and the centurion serve very different sorts of kingdoms. The centurion, he identifies Jesus as a man within the divine chain of command. And the chain above Jesus is short. It's no more than a link. 
He recognizes Jesus as God's right hand, God's man in the field, the representative and the inaugurator of heaven's reign on the earth. And he's right. Jesus will go on to say in Luke 10, 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And in John, he says, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And he also says in John, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. You see, our soldier, he knows the authority and the power an agent of Caesar wields in foreign lands. He can command legions. He can demand taxes. He can raise a city to the ground. But Jesus commands the very forces of creation. Legions of angels are at his beck and call. He can rebuke and roll back evil, sin, even death. The centurion acknowledges Jesus' authority. And on the basis of that authority, he exercises faith in him as God's anointed one. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The centurion, he doesn't approach Jesus on the basis of his worthiness. He is a decent man who's done many pious acts. He's evidenced his goodness at great personal cost, but he does not demand an audience confident in himself. In great humility, he openly confesses his own insufficiency, his shortcoming, his distance from God, his alienation from God's way, from God's covenant. He admits that he's a foreigner. He's a pagan. He's a a man with blood on his hands. He's a, a tool of the empire. Yet the centurion does not believe that he's so unworthy and debased that he cannot boldly ask Jesus for healing. He is confident, but not in himself. He is confident in Jesus' goodness and his power. He's certain not only on Jesus' capabilities, but in his heart. He trusts that rescuing a slave from the brink of death is the exact sort of thing that aligns with Jesus' character and his mission brief. And this centurion, he trusts Jesus without ever having met Jesus in person. He's only heard reports, but still he believes and he acts. He understands Jesus' authority, his mission, his relationship with God. And he trusts that for Jesus, space and time, cultural distance, all of that offers no limitation to his great power. And this is the sort of faith that Jesus has not even witnessed among God's people. 
but he finds it in a Roman soldier. This man who's accustomed to being in charge discovers grace when he gives up trying to be in control. He's a man who shows love for another person by willingly humbling himself so that a a servant, an inferior, might experience restoration. And Jesus, he marvels at this man's faith and he reciprocates with faithfulness. And I kind of like it that Jesus throws in a little flex as well. Because the centurion had shocked his hearers by claiming that Jesus could simply heal by uttering a command. And Jesus rewards this man's faith with even a greater display of his authority. He says, you know what? All I have to do is think it. Notice we're never told that Jesus says the word. The intention of his heart is enough to bring the servant to wholeness. So this is our passage. This is our Jesus story this morning. Now, what do we do with it? You see, we become disciples by beholding Jesus, by observing and learning from him his way, and then responding to him in faith, by hearing his words and then doing them. And the beauty of the gospel is not only are we given the opportunity to behold Jesus, but we're granted the power to become like Jesus. The gospel shapes us into the image and likeness of Jesus as we surrender to and as we trust the transformative work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. The gospel frees us to admit our failures because our worth does not hang on our success. Our worth hangs on Jesus' success, on his victory, on his life over death. And we become like Jesus when we behold him and we respond to him in faith. I love how some like to say it. We are imperfect disciples who cling to a perfect Christ while we are perfected by the Spirit. So how will we live what we are learning this morning? How will we respond to Jesus in faith in light of this passage? And here's what I see. Number one, recognize Jesus' authority. That's what the centurion gets. Recognize his authority. He's not some humble carpenter only. He's not a spiritual guru or mystic. He's the son of God. He's the breaker of evil. He's the defeater of death. He's the world's true king. He's the one who is right now, as we read in Ephesians, seated at God's right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also into the one to come. God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him his, as head over all things. And he gave him to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Do we recognize Jesus' authority? Do we recognize who it is we are praying to? This past week, the elders gathered to pray over one of our members. We anointed with oil, we laid on hands, and we asked the Lord to heal And it's interesting when you do that sort of thing because there's this little voice in the back of your mind that says, don't pray that. That's inappropriate. Why is it inappropriate? Well, you might get their hopes up. Who says God will heal? Or we say they just need to talk to their doctor. Don't get involved. Leave it to the professionals. Or who are you to boss around God? We sat there as elders and we said, think about this. We are trusting God to resurrect this brother's corpse one day. To raise him to unquenchable life. We are trusting God to keep this sister's soul secure in the paradise of his presence after death. We're trusting God to put an end to evil, to remake the world. And we are squeamish to ask God to deal with cancer to address addiction, to heal relational brokenness in our life. And the centurion says, have confidence in his power. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, this is Romans 8, 11, dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. The full resources of heaven are at his disposal and thus they're at our disposal. And what's more, Jesus asks us to pray. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. The Lord is at hand. He is near at hand. He is right here. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. James 5, 13 through 16, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The centurion recognizes Jesus' authority. He is confident in his power. He says, say the word and my servant will be healed. But recognizing Jesus' authority also means submitting to his leadership. 
The centurion humbles himself before Jesus and he acknowledges him as Lord. Lord of all, as one who is in authority also over him. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How can we ask Jesus to use his authority, his supernatural power on our behalf and yet refuse to heed his word and follow his way? We just read this in Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? There's a psalm, Psalm 2, that, that celebrates God installing His King, His royal Son, in Jerusalem as the true ruler of the world. And the psalm ends with these words. He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, embrace Him, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Jesus has all authority, but He's not a genie that works for us. He's God, and He's worthy of worship. And the centurion, he recognizes Jesus' authority. And in doing so, he's confident in God's power while also being submitted to his leadership. And we need to embrace both if we ever expect for Jesus to show up in power in our life. Indeed, if you expect to experience power or wholeness or freedom or healing You need Jesus to show up in your life. There is no other way. Peter preached this in Acts chapter 4. He says this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, the most important foundation upon which men and women can build their lives And he says there is salvation, there is healing. It's the same word in Greek. There is salvation, there is healing, and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, by which we can be healed. We need Jesus to show up. If we ever hope, to experience wholeness and joy and freedom and life. Any of that that we experience comes through Jesus. So number one, recognize Jesus' authority. Number two, understand Jesus' heart. See Jesus' compassion, His eagerness to suffer with hurting humanity comprehend grace we don't approach on the basis of our merit we approach because we expect to find kindness that we do not deserve at great cost to himself jesus will forgive us he'll renew us 
He'll share with us his very life. And if we know his character, if we understand his mission brief, then we will know what sort of prayers we can pray with confidence. It's not, Lord, give me a Camaro, right? It's what is his heart? What is his will? What is he seeking to accomplish in the world? And if we know that, if we understand his heart, it will amplify the effectiveness of our petitions. 1 John 5, 13 through 15, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have right now eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. If we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. We don't always know God's timing, his reasons, his methods. But we know his heart. We know what he is passionate to do. The centurion went out on a limb. He interceded. He humbled himself. He asked God to heal because he knew that this man who was seen as disposable by his society was the exact, this moment where this nobody who is hopeless and has no expectation of good, those are the exact sorts of moments that Jesus thrills to step in and show God's heart for God's glory. The centurion understood Jesus' heart. Do we? The third thing, exercise your faith. The kind of faith that leads to salvation, it accepts God's Word and it produces fruit of repentance that perseveres. Genuine faith, it's accompanied by love for God, love for Christ, and it it produces in us this radical discipleship. It makes me wonder... There were soldiers, Roman soldiers, that came to John the Baptist in the wilderness. He said, you know, flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping in repentance. And the soldiers, these foreigners, asked him, what shall we do? And he said, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. Be content with your wages. And I wonder if this centurion was one of those men, one of those soldiers who heard respond in repentance, and he does so. But he also responds by continually trusting and pursuing Jesus. John said, there's one coming after me who's greater than I. And he kept looking and kept looking and kept looking. And then he put his belief, his confidence, his trust into action. Will we exercise our faith in light of his heart and his authority? One final scripture reference for you. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become a partaker of his divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So in light of God's authority, in light of his heart, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of your Lord Jesus Christ. Often I think we recognize his authority, We understand his heart, but we are ineffective and unfruitful in that knowledge because we're not exercising our faith in response. But when we do, the fourth thing, we get to marvel at his faithfulness. It's not ultimately a story about the centurion's faith. It's a story about Jesus' faithfulness to humanity. And I think we either have this small, sad, emaciated view of Jesus, or we recognize Jesus for the powerhouse that he is, but we approach him as our own personal Santa Claus or genie, rather than the Lord of all, the rescuer of humanity. He's heaven's right hand. He's your rightful king. He is God in the flesh. It should change the very course of how we live our lives. Amen? Amen. Well, let us pray as the worship team comes forward to close us in song. God, you are our good, good Father. You are our Lord of all. You are our healer and our redeemer. You are grace incarnate. May we not just come to believe that, God, but may that belief change the way we live our lives. May we be bold enough to obey you, to pray, knowing, God, that we don't know what form it will take, but you are a God of healing, whether in this life or the next. God, you are a God that wants to see evil's power broken in our lives and in our world. God, this is your heart. This is your authority. This is what you are doing. May we respond to you in faith. Make us fruitful and productive, but more than anything, may our faith open the door to see you as you truly are and to experience your miraculous power in us and around us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.